Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me, as ever, is the professor, Professor Alan Jameson. Hello, mate. Happy Christmas, Tom. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, all that good stuff. My next door neighbour is having the loudest Zoom conversation I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I think it's going through a subwoofer. It's good and bassy. So I'm sorry if there's a little bit of, of bassy rumble uh, in the background of this one. I, I can hear him and I'm 92 miles away. <laughs> I'm just hoping it's nothing like uh, secretive. But anyway, I think it's all mumbly. But yeah, if you hear anything in the background, that is what's going on. Yeah, so we survived Christmas. We broke a promise because we said we were going to do something silly and fun over Christmas like we usually do. And then it just it got difficult and we didn't manage to do it, unfortunately. So sorry, everyone, for that. There was one thing that got in the way of the Christmas special. Was it, was it problem drinking? Was it, it was the pub. <laughs> <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men. <laughs> we set out with all best intentions and uh, I think the pub got the better of us. And uh, We did record a really awful interview with some poor waitress in a restaurant. <laughs> Asking her about the deep sea. Yeah. And that, that's, no, that's no reflection on her. She was such a good sport and so like... Yeah. <laughs> So genuine about it. It turns out she doesn't know anything about the deep sea, so it's podcast gold. And that's fine. But yeah, so it, it went a bit cringy, so we, we opted out of that. And uh, yeah, it turns out when, when you set foot back in the UK, mm -hmm. there's lots of folk who want to see you. You're quite busy. Yeah. You're not just sort of milling around <laughs> looking for things to do. I know, it's difficult. But, you know, we did have a good night out, so it wasn't wasted. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it was just a, a lost episode. Like a, a lost old Doctor Who episode. You can always wonder about how good it would have been. We could do a debrief. We could do a Christmas debrief rather than a Christmas special. So we can do a special about how much we didn't do any podcasting over Christmas. <laughs> but not for lack of trying. But yeah, just, sorry all. Hey, it's Christmas and we've all got kids and it's nuts. What was the best incredibly complicated toy you had to build on Christmas Day, Alan? Oh, uh, I don't know, lots of Lego. Oh, nice. Yeah, nothing particularly complex. It's quite, they're getting bigger and bigger and more complicated. It's not like the old days where it's just a car with a policeman sat on it. It's like <laughs> ninja dragons and all sorts of stuff. But uh, no, quite enjoyed it. Uh, I like I like building Lego. It's that little bit of peace and quiet. It's a little break from the rest of the madness that is Christmas. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the kids are supposed to do the Lego building, but I quite like it. Do you just call them over when it's done? Yeah. Or just build it and then smash it up and see right, it's your turn now. <laughs> just so you know, I can do this. I did it first. Can you do it now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I built lots of train sets and unfortunately it was a group activity. So I'm trying to put some genuine thought into how to build these train routes and how to get this bridge to go over this junction and all of that. And then at the other end is just a three-year-old tearing up the bits I've done and like putting bridges that go nowhere and things like that. Mm. I have to realize it's not about building the train set. It's about him having fun. But he's messing up my train set and I've got really good ideas for how this junction is going to work. Well, you should fire him. <laughs> I should get up before him. No, Christmas Eve, yeah. I'll unwrap his presents. I'll get it all out of my system. I'll have a good play with him. Yeah. And then I can just sling at him on yeah. Christmas Day. And if you break it, you just play one of him. Yeah, it's three. He breaks loads of stuff. That's fine. <laughs> So I have a song of the month for this one. It is Pirate Emergency by Ollie Frost, who's someone I discovered relatively recently. He writes parody songs about the climate crisis and each different environmental theme also has a different musical style. And Pirate Emergency is a good old sea shanty. And if you listen to the lyrics, actually, it's quite good. <laughs> so a lot of well, well thought out thoughts in there. So yeah, that'll be the soundtrack for this month. Good job. As, a, as it's the Christmas special, sort of, at the moment, my, my go-to song was going to be anything by Nine Inch Nails. It doesn't matter what song it is. Right, what just I'll put it on what, shuffle. Yeah, just put it on shuffle. Just play something <laughs> loud and industrial. 
uh, you know, just to Merry get, Christmas. get in the spirit of it all. Are you aware of Bob Dylan's Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart? I've heard of it, but thankfully I've never heard it. It was, was it from me? Did I subject you to it? It's part of music folklore, isn't it? That, how, how do you <laughs> take one amazing. of the biggest guys ever and who convinced them to do this? Oh, and he, he doesn't look happy to be there. there. There is one video and it's worth watching because he's sort of barely in it. and He's so low energy and everyone around him, like there's lots of jump cuts to make it work. And everyone around him is so high energy to try and account for the fact that he seems to be just propped up mumbling Christmas songs. So yeah, Christmas in the heart, definitely get it on during Christmas dinner. Um, just to upset anyone who's like really into music. This is the Bob Dylan, but he's doing this. <laughs> cool. Shall we crack on with some news? Yes, go for it. What have you got? We've been keeping an eye on the Atacama snailfish picture. Uh, this is, we've chatted about it a few times before. This is a picture that Alan took back in, was it 2009? 2010. 2010, a house close. Yep. Uh, in the Atacama Trench off South America. Uh, and it's a beautiful picture of a Hadal snailfish. These big wing-like pectoral fins. Uh, it looks really angelic. And it's just a beautiful image. And it tends to be a nicer or more attractive image of a Hadal snailfish than a lot of other ones of Hadal snailfish. So it, it ends up getting sort of misappropriated. It ends up getting attached to other species. And when you Google it, it's like the first image that you get up for a Hadal snailfish. So the, you've lost control of it, essentially. It's kind of public domain now just by sheer numbers. And somebody made us aware that it has turned up in another unusual place uh, that maybe we wouldn't want it to be. It is in the Jelaine Maxwell documentary on Netflix. Right. How, how, how did that happen? Well, I wasn't sure how these things join up, but apparently... She set up an ocean charity and gave a TED talk about it. It was the Terra Mar project. So she was, uh, yeah, uh, uh, an ocean philanthropist as well <laughs> as other things. Wow. Okay. So she's a fan of the uh, Atacama snailfish. Did she, who did she credit it to? Out of interest. I think it it just says something really broad, like um, like a deep sea fish or a deep sea snailfish. I need to actually dig it out. I'm just not sure I'm emotionally strong enough to watch that documentary. Well, that's interesting. I never thought I'd pop up in that context, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if if anyone had that in their bingo card, well done. Yeah. Wow. All right. That's different. We must uh, we must write a short story one day about the where this picture has turned up and who's claimed credit for it and uh, what it's been used for and so on and so on. It'll be a fascinating little book. Yeah. Like one of those tiny little books you get in bookshops at Christmas that cost like two pounds <laughs> and no one ever truly reads. I've got my snailfish by Alan James. <laughs> but underline my. It's my one. Well, a bit of a spoiler. In about two or three months' time, there's going to be huge snailfish news coming this way. So, yeah, stay tuned. Exciting times. Yeah, it's all looking very cool. They are very cool. They're very good fish. That image, there's no other source for it. Like, it's it's so recognisable. It doesn't stop American Institute stamping their name on it, though, does it? <laughs> no, it was just one of those things that it, big iconic images were probably not taken by some Scottish dude. It must have been taken by a big American Institute, therefore they just picked one. Oh, so you reckon, like, sloppy reporting? Yes, that... yes. But anyway, let's not dwell on that. <laughs> Once it's out there, it's out there, and the damage is done, and it perpetuates. It's amazing seeing how much art is based on it as well because of that interesting little fin notch. Yeah, it's got a little tear in its in its pectoral fin, and it's like a, a fingerprint. So we're like, ah, we know what you copied to make that. But yeah, drawing's okay. Speaking of things that are perpetuating, I've got I've got something else in the news this week, and it's a kind of Aussie one. There was a Taiwanese exchange student who was studying in Australia has pressed the first coin to be made in 2023, oh. and the coin features a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. But the new coins will eventually feature King Charles III and enter circulation later. And the reason why I'm talking about this, it was. Uh, 
It was done at the Royal Australian Mint in Canberra, but the flip side of the coin is Creatures of the Deep. Oh. Right? So it has lots of interesting things on it. So it's the first coin of the year, and it's part of a collection featuring Australia's rarely seen creatures from the deep, including the Big Fin Squid, which is the Magnapinid, hey. Brittle Stars, which is the Ophiroid, the Dumbo Octopus, the Grimpachuthis, Gold Coral, Cactus Urchins, and Spiny King Crabs. Uh, so yeah, it looks pretty cool. It looks very nice. Oh, that's amazing. So congratulations oh, to a her. shout out to the deep sea. Yeah, but you remember I was talking about things that perpetuate themselves. Well, oh. the chief executive of CSIRO, which is the big environmental marine place in Australia, uh, they needed to, obviously the, the journalist needed a little comment about uh, <laughs> creatures from the deep from a, from a marine institute. So they got some professor who shall remain nameless, came up with this amazingly original take on don't what they think don't. yes yes <laughs> my nose is bleeding what's happening <laughs> it says so much this is a direct quote from a professor at csiro so much of our deep ocean remains a mystery we know more about the surface no. of mars than we do about our deepest oceans thank you very much and good night oh so, all the blood vessels have burst in my life so eye. even even the chief executive of csiro gets all their deep sea knowledge from blue planet there you go boom because that was mars not the moon right <laughs> so we know where mars came from the moon's a bit more uh, distant past, but yeah, there you go. Yeah, we're over the moon now. It's all about Mars. So wait a minute, just before before we clock off, I am actually going to keep a note of every single time I see that this year. And this one was published on the 1st of January at 9.29am. So there you go. Straight through the gate. 29 minutes into the first working hour of the first day of the year, we know more about Mars and the deep ocean. Now I think we should start on Mars and Moon Diary. Mars and Moon Diet, okay. Well, let's tally the scores. Yep. Who's going to win, Mars or the Moon? Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. That could be a battle. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Moon's been, been in circulation longer, but Mars seems to be the common one at the moment, so it's anyone's game. We'll see it overtake, won't we? Yeah. We'll see the uh, the classic be replaced by the, the new hotness, Mars. I think you know more about Uranus than you do about the deep sea, Tom. <laughs> see what I did there? That was a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> Another bit of news, you've invented a new word. I quite like this one. I didn't technically invent a new word. I instigated the coining of a new word. So okay. this goes to back to a paper. I was asked to write, this is not a paper I would have written over my own back, but I was asked to write something for a special issue to do with how plastics reshape uh, habitat. And at the time, we had just come back from the Philippine Trench. I don't know if you remember that interview we did on the podcast with, with Tim McDonald at the bottom of the Philippine Trench. And there was heaps of plastic bags, and we finally realized it was the plastic bags that was creating these big long lines along the seafloor because they're drifting around and so on. And in normal ecology, biology, or whatever you want to call it, when you see tracks and burrows and pits and things like that on the on the sediment surface, it's called Lebensspuren, which is a German word for life traces. And you can quite often infer quite a lot about what's going on based on the traces that the animals have left rather than the animal itself, because the density can be quite low. So you can say things like there were urchins here, there were holothurians here, just by looking at the tracks. So anyway, so we did this, we wrote this paper about plastic bags and how they are sort of eroding that. Because th these, these tracks and burrows are important because it's, it's mixing oxygen and nutrients and top sediment and the sedimentation rate from the surface is so low that, you know, the microtopography is very important to things like bacteria, nematodes, myofauna, all the rest of it. To them, these are mountains and valleys. And these plastic bags are just coming along and just wiping it all out. So anyway, so there was that. And then as I was writing it, I was thinking, well, I wrote a sentence in there like plastic bags offer this another sort of form of Lebensburen. But then I was like, I can't say that because Lebensburen means life traces. This is not something that's alive. It's not an animal. So we need another word. So I started Google translating to see if I can find a, a German word that meant the opposite. Uh, and it wasn't really working out that well. So I used to work a lot with Professor Hans Jochen Wagner, 
who's at the University of Tübingen. He's a brain surgeon, but he dabbles in deep sea fish at the same time, as does Professor Ron Douglas at City University. He's also a retired brain surgeon who dabbled a lot in deep sea fish eyes. And Jochen's certainly German, and, and Ron's multilingual and loves a, loves a good wordsmith. I said to him, this is the word I'll come up with. I can't remember. I think it was Tachenspuren. And he came back and went, no. And because they're both in the retirement, we had lots of emails back and forward about what would be the best German word for this? And they were just sort of like laughing and joking and talking about it. Because in Germany, you can't actually just make up words, right? And we came up with Mühlspüren. And Mühlspüren means bag traces. So now you've got <laughs> Mühlspüren sort of eroding away Lebenspüren in the deep sea. So we thought it was very funny that we just coined this new word. So there you go. And that's why if you read the acknowledgements, it thanks Jochen and Ron for their German linguistics at the end. <laughs> Hey, German linguistics are not to be taken yeah. lightly. This paper is not going to change your life, though. Honestly, it was it's an interesting observation, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and read it. <laughs> I know it's, I know it's the like the meaning of the word, but are you are you applying it to all plastic waste, or is it very specifically no, bags? Bags, because all, most just m- bags. most plastic waste I've seen just goes down the bottom and gets just sits there. Anything denser, just fishing lines and things like that, just collapse. Pretty much, yeah. They just coil up or whatever. You know, there's not no rules that believe they're, they're affecting anything under the, other than their own footprint, whereas the plastic bags are definitely just wafting around. And we, we put a figure in there. It was like the life history of a plastic bag. So you can see it hanging midwater. You see it approaching the seafloor. You see it creating these big tram tracks across the seafloor. Then you see it eventually being buried and breaking up. And so they, they behave very differently from normal plastic. Normal plastic tends to just hit the ground and maybe roll about for a bit, but it doesn't. Because the, the, the point I was trying to make in the paper was this wasn't just us following a plastic bag and went, oh, look at that. It was for the last four years, every time we go at the bottom of a trench, we're seeing these tram tracks or these big, long, smooth, straight lines. And the only thing that moves straight on the bottom is the current, right? Animals don't move straight. And there's no animals down there which are half a meter wide and just bulldozing across the seafloor. So we're kind of wondering why is it there's a... We thought maybe there were cables. We thought it was gear for a while, didn't we? We thought it was gear, and I thought maybe it was a cable that was moving back and forth, but they're always sort of almost parallel, you know, and they're quite conspicuous. And we saw them from the Arctic all the way through to the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and Mariana particularly, and all the rest of it. And yeah, it was nice. There were so many plastic bags in the Philippines that we managed to catch it in every stage of its development. So, Life cycle. Yeah, basically, yeah. So, as I say, it was a... It's not a paper you're ever going to win an award for, I'll tell you that, but uh, it was fun to write. I've got a strong mental image of the the plastic bag scene from uh, American Beauty. Just need to like superimpose Mulspuren on that. Well, one of the plastic bags I saw on that had, a, had an eco-friendly sign on the side of it. Oh, that was a great one, wasn't yeah. it? That was, that was the irony bag. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure how eco-friendly that really is when you see it at 10,000 meters. Tangled around a sea turtle. The other bit of news actually isn't breaking news. It was back in the 60s, but it did fit nicely with another bit of interesting news. So back in the 1960s, legendary Alvin Submersible sunk. Quite a thrilling moment. A cable snapped. The crew had to scramble out the hatch before the vessel sunk to over 1,300 meters, about 4,500 feet. The only loss that day was lunch, some apples and a bologna sandwich. And a rescue mission took 10 months to recover the lunch, incidentally also recovering the sub, but it was all about the lunch. And the food apparently was surprisingly intact and edible because, of course, they tried eating it before <laughs> before testing it for anything else that was going on. And that led to all sorts of theories about bacterial decomposition in the deep sea. Uh, it was an impromptu experiment. Had you heard about this one? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a famous one. Yeah. Up, yeah. And the, the hatch must have closed because any... Anything fishy gets in there, that would have, I would have loved a bologna sandwich. 
But surely if the hatch was shut, it wouldn't sink. Just a jar kind of thing. Like it let, it let the water in, but then as, as it, when it sank to the bottom, I think it must have it must have closed because a, a ratty's going to love that. I thought it was in a sealed box or a sealed bag or something like that. So ah, it, it right, was under okay. pressure and it was that temperature and, and the combination of pressure and temperature preserved it. I thought that was, that's the story. I, I've never actually read it myself, but that's the story I always heard that it was just it's one of those things. And then because the that's why we have refrigerators and you can also preserve stuff using pressure because it slows down the rate of bacterial composition. So you've got two, two of them working in unison there. Uh, makes it a good but expensive place to preserve your sandwiches but yeah 10 month bologna sandwich um and yeah there's a there's a paper from the time which is quite interesting and it was funny how quickly they had to work on the sandwich because it started decomposing so it's been fine for 10 months at the bottom of the sea but it's decomposing rapidly after everyone's had a little nibble of course and then they start doing some testing and that ties in with a more recent paper which is finding that most deep sea microbes are actually inactive they're in like standby mode waiting for suitable conditions. Uh, so this was some in-situ studies in the Atlantic, Pacific, Oceans, and the Mediterranean Sea. And a, a very broad oversimplification was that about 3% of deep sea bacteria are respiring. The others are sort of in a, in a standby mode. So they, the numbers of bacteria in the deep sea are huge, uh, but they're kind of turning themselves off for long periods of time. And I know our microbial friends, there's lots of arguments about well, they're there, but are they doing anything? And I think it certainly warrants uh, an episode down the line. Definitely. I've just been looking on uh, Deep Sea News and uh, posted one hour ago on Microsoft News Network. Newcastle Deep Ocean Consultancy works with Avatar director James Cameron. Anyone we know? Uh, that's a bit of a push. <laughs> well, I was just talking about our podcast, really. And yes, I did used to work a little bit with uh, Mr. Cameron. Not so much of late. We do stay in touch, but I wouldn't say we work together. But yeah, there you go. Oh, here we go. The podcast has been gaining traction and is now reaching the top 2.5% of all global podcasts and charting under life sciences regularly. Nice. Cameron apparently said his primary focus in life is curiosity and wherever that takes me. Remember that? I do. Anyone who's seen on the feed, we re-released our interview with James Cameron, basically, because, of course, Avatar 2 was coming out. So you will have seen that in the in the pressurized episodes. That was early days, wasn't it? That was like the fourth episode, maybe? No, nah, it's more than that, I think. But uh, it does also show that because I've just said I'm reading this right now on my phone while I was recording the podcast, I might have let it known to viewers that I don't necessarily always do a lot of preparation before we do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but then saying that, it was only published an hour ago, so uh, that's... Oh, hot off the press. Ink still Hot wet. off the press. There's uh, t- 10 bizarre deep-sea creatures found in 2022. Oh, yeah, go on. Tell me the related stories. Tell me what gets, like, yeah. lumped in with us. Here we go. Yeah, this is the real stuff. The Luminous Lump of Spaghetti, right. which is uh, by M. Barry. Yeah, spaghetti worms. Number two is a squid mom carrying pearl-like eggs. Oh, that was good. Yep, it's also M. Barry. Uh, the Gummy Squirrel. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep, it's a holothurian of some type. The Mysterious Blue Goo, remember that? Oh, we argued about that. Yep. Couldn't figure that out. I was going to say, I wonder if they've worked out by now, but there's a quote that says, I can tell you it's not a rock, but that's as far as I can go, one researcher joke. <laughs> uh, the Weird Eye Strawberry Squid, another Embarry one. Alien Shopping Bag, which is just uh, an Ipneastes. I don't know why they've called it Shopping Bag, and it's not alien, but there you go. That's from Nautilus. Translucent Jell-O Fish. Jell-O Fish? Someone from Noah. It's a gelatinous fish known as the Blotched Snailfish. Ooh, that, oh, yeah. that is bizarre. They're quite pretty. Yeah, very weird. Never seen that before. 830 meters. Uh, the creepy smiling shark, which is uh, a dead shark, uh, <laughs> otherwise known as a dead shark. Uh, oh, there we go. I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm in it. Hey. Deepest dueling squid. There you go. There you go. 
There you go. Well done. And I even get credited. I get credit for it as well, which is nice. <laughs> there you go. The Magna Pinhead, deepest one of it. And there's also the Vanilla Vader Woodlouse, which is some sort of a bathynomous isopod. That's from Journal of Natural History. Is that the new one? The new species from this year? I presume so, yeah. It's uh, very brief, and uh, I think it's just an excuse to show some creatures <laughs> of the deep. But... Is, it, is this not a full scientific article? Are you into Yahoo News now? Big Squidman and I made the top 10, so that's that's good. There you go. Good stuff. Nailed it. All right, so the other thing that happened was uh, Johanna Weston, who used to do her PhD with me, she's now at Woods Hole, and she was interested in the open AI thing, which is quite a controversial thing on the internet at the moment, about having artificial intelligence answering questions and writing essays for undergraduates and so on. Anyway, Johanna sent me an email out of the blue saying she asked OpenAI's JavaScript helper chatbot what research questions will scientists work on during the next 10 years on the Hale Zone? And it turns out this AI is so good that it replied on my behalf. <laughs> and it was quite polite. It's probably more polite than the original. Bear in mind, this is not. It starts off. It starts off with a quote from. Well, it's not a quote from me at all. It's just. It's just. It's pretending to be me. It says, "Doctor Jameson, the next ten years will see a lot of work on the Hale Zone, and I think we will see a lot of new discoveries. We are just starting to understand the Hale Zone, and there is so much more to learn. We will be looking at how animals survive in such extreme conditions, what they eat, how they reproduce, how they are adapted to live in such an extreme environment. We'll also be looking at the geology of the Hale Zone and how it is formed. So." I have become sentient. I've become Skynet. You've been backed up. Yeah. We've got to spare Alan because you're, you're really burning through the original. <laughs> I, I, I thought these AIs were getting clever in that they could answer the questions. I didn't realise they were getting clever in that they're pretending to be someone else. <laughs> it actually starts off saying, Dr. Jameson, semicolon says. Yeah. It's pretending to, it's pretending to answer on my behalf. That's frightening, isn't it? And that quote is just totally made up. It's not pulled it from somewhere. No, no, no. It's just... That's just uh, generic sort of waffle that's weird isn't it i didn't realize it picked a sort of an expert and pretended to be them that's the rest of my holiday sorry yeah just have little conversations with it but then is it learning from you is it getting more accurate well if i show at it and say i'm not happy about that will it be artificially intelligent enough to stop doing that there you go skynet starts here so we crack on with our guest oh I, we haven't spoken about what we're going to talk about so this is part of our arc of big deep sea concepts and habitats. So we started off with seamounts with ash and tangents about sausage, but ultimately more seamount than sausage. <laughs> Was it more about seamounts than sausage? Because well, I've listened back. <laughs> there's a little bit, yeah, well, the both are equally as important. You, you know, the, the ocean wouldn't survive without seamounts or sausages. You can't have seamounts without sausages. You can't have sausages without seamounts. Exactly. So then the next level down, those are obviously big volcanic formed features. So the next thing is probably hydrothermal vents and about, I think it was at least a year ago, someone wrote to us and said, uh, can you do an episode on hydrothermal vents? Because they're very interested in that. And that's why they listen to Deep Sea Podcast. And I wrote back honestly and said, of course, of course. It'd be ridiculous if we didn't cover one of the most charismatic habitats. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we just never got around to it. There was always something else. So uh, we have finally got around to it. So we are going to talk about hydrothermal vents. And we're going to speak with Professor Charles Chuck Fisher, marine biologist and recently retired professor of biology at Pennsylvania State University. His research has been influential in the field of cold seeps and hydrothermal vents in the deep sea. And specifically, his research has focused on the physiology of animals and the ecology of these habitats, including the study of chemotrophic bacterial symbiosis. So here we go. Let's call Chuck.
I'm lucky enough to be joined by Professor Charles Chuck Fisher. Thanks so much for coming out and chat with us, Chuck. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can we start off with, with what creates these habitats? What's the sort of geological context? Well, hydrothermal vents are formed in areas of the deep sea where the plates that make up the crust of the planet are spreading apart. New C4s being formed and superheated water is venting out full of nutrients for a variety of different types of bacteria. So what, what makes them so interesting from a, a biological perspective? They're sort of unlinked to the traditional energy sources we, we see on most of, most of Earth. Well, actually, that's exactly what makes them most interesting, in my opinion, is the fact that they are environments where energy is being produced by bacteria in a form that animals can utilize. So they can be decoupled from the rest of the planet. They, of course, need oxygen, which does come ultimately from photosynthesis on the surface. But the energy sources are coming out of the deep earth. And what sort of chemistry is, is going on here? How is biological energy being produced from these chemicals? Is, are there different types or is it the same reaction in a few different places? Well, there's actually a variety of different chemicals that bacteria can use for autotrophy, that is to use as an energy source to grow. The primary one at most hydrothermal vents is hydrogen sulfide, which is actually formed deep underneath the Earth's crust where hot water is reacting in an anaerobic environment with heated rocks, and it's leached from those rocks and ultimately released at the seafloor. But that's not the only chemical that can provide energy for bacterial autotrophy. Methane is another very important one. And in fact, there's a wide variety of reduced chemicals, reduced metals, all of which bacteria can utilize to grow. And where you have bacteria growing, you've got a potential food source for animals. And is the bottom of the food web, it's, it's always bacterial? There's nothing more complex than that? In these environments, yes, the base of the food web is bacterial. In the deep sea, of course, there's no light. So very little of the primary production, very little of the food produced by photosynthesis on the surface of the ocean makes it into the deep sea. So the primary base of the food web is, in fact, bacterial chemoautotrophy or chemosynthesis. And who are, the, uh, who are the, say, big players in this food web? Uh, what, what sort of is the chain? We've got bacteria at the bottom. They're creating this energy source sort of separate from photosynthesis. And then how does that energy then transfer through the system? Well, I guess the biggest players, in my opinion, which is a little different from a microbiologist, <laughs> the microbiologist would be all about the free-living bacteria. But I am all about the bigger animals, specifically the ones that have bacteria inside them. They're symbiotic with the bacteria that produce the energy and the food they need to grow. And one of the most amazing of these are the uh, hydrothermal vent tube worms. And these are the animals that first caught my interest and was the focus of much of my early research. And they're, uh, they're the sort of iconic creatures that we think of when we think of hydrothermal vents. You always see those huge calcareous tubes. And then the, is it gills that are exposed at the top, the deep red? Yes, it is a type of a gill that you see sticking out of the tube of these worms. Uh, the red is blood. It's very well vascularized. And that gill is actually, that plume, as we call it for the tube worms, is where they take up the dissolved gases that they will transport to the bacteria deep inside their body. In fact, one of the first amazing things we learned about these animals is that unlike virtually all other red-blooded animals on Earth, their blood is not poisoned by hydrogen sulfide, like ours is. 
Rather, their blood can bind and transport that toxic chemical deep inside their tissues to feed their bacteria. Well, do they have a dedicated pigment for that? It's their hemoglobin. It's a very special hemoglobin. The hemoglobin actually has sites to carry oxygen, just like ours, but it also has other sites to carry hydrogen sulfide. Oh, that's incredible. What's sort of the history of the worms? Do we know how they evolved to be so specialized? What's their sort of closest ancestor? Well, they are a type of annelid worm. They apparently evolved in the deep sea. The most ancestral ones appear to have been tube worms found around cold seeps, which are just a little less toxic, if you will, than a hydrothermal vent, but still have all the <laughs> necessary chemicals. So yeah, they evolved from a rather normal shallow water worm and uh, just got some really amazing adaptations. When they were first discovered, they were so weird that scientists thought they must be maybe their own phylum, but it turns out they're not. They're just a member of a rather large phylum of annelids. But just such a, such a real organization of the bodies. I had no idea that the actual symbiotes were, were quite deep within the body. I assumed they were on the, on the plumes. It's incredible that that's transported and the animal has, has arranged itself so, so completely to transport to this internal farm. Absolutely. And if you think about it for a minute, I think you can see why, in this case, the symbionts need to be in an internal organ. These are big worms. I mean, these worms can be over a meter in length, weigh hundreds of grams, and they're pretty active. So they require a lot of energy, a lot of food, which means a lot of bacteria. So deep inside these worms, in where their normal gut would be, is a specialized sac. It's called the trophosome. And that sac is basically just a bag of bacteria. That's incredible. I, I had no idea there was a dedicated organ. And it, it would have been a... A stomach long ago, but now it's, uh, it's sort of a bacterial farm? Well, yes and no. People who studied the evolution of the trophosome say that it actually did not evolve from the same tissue that gut evolves from. But it certainly is in the place where a gut would be. And it functions much like a gut, but it did not evolve from a gut. That's just even more interesting. <laughs> so what is it the bacteria are, are releasing? And how is it obtaken by the organism? If, if that's not gut tissue, this is really specialist. Yes, it absolutely is. Well, the tissue is very well vascularized, as you might imagine, because all the gases that the bacteria need to live and grow have to come in through the blood. And the three primary gases for a tube worm are hydrogen sulfide, oxygen, which is used to oxidize the sulfide and produce energy, and CO2 which they fix in a manner very analogous to the way a green plant does. Hmm. So a green plant will use the energy from sunlight to fix carbon and produce the food that the rest of the surface of the earth consumes. In the case of the tube worms, they use the energy from the oxidation of hydrogen sulfide to fix carbon that then they can live and grow off. Incredible. That's amazing as it is, but they're amazingly heat tolerant as well, aren't they? They're, they're, they tend to be the, the ones right near the vent itself. Yeah. So for a deep sea animal, they're heat tolerant. But keep in mind that most of the deep sea is a little under two degrees centigrade in temperature. The tube worms actually don't live in remarkably high temperatures. For the most part, you find tube worms at about room temperature, you know, 20, 30 maybe 40 degrees centigrade. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's quite warm for the deep sea, and um, that's where they thrive. There are other animals 
found around vents that can live at higher temperatures that actually live very close to the very hot venting water. And some of those can tolerate temperatures up to 50 and 60 degrees, but really, you know, not much more than, for example, a desert ant might experience on a hot day. The real stars of, of thriving in high temperatures are the thermophilic bacteria. And some of those can live quite happily at temperatures above that which water would boil on the surface of the earth. And are those found at the vent systems themselves? No, they absolutely are. You do find them on hot springs on the surface of the earth, places like Yellowstone. But one of the factors at the vents that allows the bacteria to thrive at even higher temperatures is that the high pressure keeps water from boiling at 100 degrees centigrade. Hmm. In fact, water at several hundred degrees centigrade doesn't boil at hydrothermal vents. So it's still quite happily liquid and amenable to life. We discussed that the animals are actually surprisingly active, but this must drive quite a high metabolism as well. So do they need a, a larger amount of energy than you would expect because they're, they're living at an elevated temperature? Or have they got ways of slowing down their metabolism so they don't burn through too fast? Well, again, with the tube worms, their metabolism is very high for a deep sea animal. In fact, one of the early theories was that deep sea animals would have a very low metabolic rate because of the high pressure. Well, one thing we learned from hydrothermal vents is that high pressure does not always result in a low metabolic rate. <laughs> Temperature is much more important, and food supply. At hydrothermal vents, we have solid, moderate, warm temperatures and an abundant food supply. So yes, you get a variety of animals there that have kind of normal metabolic rates compared to other animals on Earth and very high metabolic rates for deep sea animals. Yeah, it seems a very active place relative to a lot of the deep sea that, that we spend our time looking at. I only have a sort of a cursory understanding of, of some of the, the large macroorganisms present, but there's some incredible adaptations to this environment. There's the, the vent shrimp as well, which seem to be quite a broad family, everything from quite classical looking shrimp to ones without eyes, but with a, is it a light sensitive or an infrared sensitive organ on the, on the carapace, like an eye on their back almost? Yeah, absolutely. There's a variety of different shrimp found at different hydrothermal vents, including the one that, that you're talking about, which is most common on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. You know, the tube worms were discovered at the first vents visit in the Galapagos in the Pacific. In the Mid-Atlantic, we have hydrothermal vents where there's no tube worms. The primary players there are these shrimp and mussels. The shrimp whose eyes are now gone, but they have a big light sensing organ on their back, actually also have symbiotic hemoautotrophic bacteria that grow under their carapace where they're farmed by the shrimp. They stay in that warm, energy-rich water, let the bacteria grow, and they scrape them off and eat them. So they still have a traditional digestive tract. They, they are ingesting the bacteria rather than ab absorbing their output. Yes, they do. They take them in through their mouth and digest them in their gut. You know, one of the really amazing things I think about the discovery of vents is that that is where, you know, over a mile down that the first hemoautotrophic symbiosis, the first symbiosis with bacteria that utilize sulfide or methane or whatever was discovered. But shortly after that, took another look at a variety of other animals and found out that this type of symbiosis is actually quite widespread <laughs> in all kinds of different worms and clams and shrimp and crabs in a variety of different environments all over the planet. So once we knew what to look for, we started seeing it everywhere. And I mean, even in the terrestrial plants, like the, 
the organelles that perform photosynthesis. The theory is that they used to be a symbiont anyway, and then they became thoroughly integrated into into the cells. So it's maybe not as strange, we're just used to seeing plants. <laughs> We've right. sort of accepted their existence. And these animals are in fact very analogous to plants, especially the ones that have fully embraced the symbiosis and lost their gut, like the tube worms. In addition to studying hydrothermal vents, I've done a lot of work at cold seeps in places like the Gulf of Mexico, where the water's not hot, it's coming up from deep sources of hydrocarbon, so it's energy rich. There's a lot of reduced chemicals, sulfide and methane in them. And the tube worms that live there are really analogous to plants. One way is that they have long roots, actually a single root that goes deep into the soil, and they use that to extract the sulfide from the sediment beneath them. And then, like many plants on the surface, they can live for hundreds and hundreds of years, just sitting in one place, taking their nutrients up from the soil, if you will, oxygen from the seawater, and living a life that really is a lot like a plant. That is a completely new one on me. What are those called? I think we'll have to do some wider reading. Yeah, so it's another kind of vestimentiferin tube worm. That is a tube worm related to those found at hydrothermal vents. The, the two I work with most in the Gulf of Mexico are in two groups, Ascarpia and Lamellabrachia. Oh, we'll definitely put some wider reading in the show notes because I that's a totally new one on me. The growing like tree roots is uh, yeah, that's a that's a brilliant analogy. Yeah, it's it's really fun. You know, we'd worked on the seeps for a long time. I I probably dove there for five years, thinking that these tube worms must be a lot like the vent tube worms that I knew pretty well. And then it was just like an alarm went off in my head one day, and I said, you know. This is a completely different ecology. These things aren't growing like gangbusters, <laughs> living fast and dying young. They had a completely different life history and a completely different approach to life. I, I think a few of the other players that I know, we all love the Yeti crabs. Sure. Um, and they're another farmer that grow them on the, the hair-like CT, isn't it? And they sort of groom themselves and feed on it. So they still have a gut as well. Am I, am I right in that? Yes, you are. We've got sort of different layers. There's the very adapted symbionts where the, they've got novel structures and the bacteria is very much integrated into their bodies and it's more of a partnership. Then there seems to be the farmers who actually eat the bacteria like they're a, a crop. And then I guess we go the next level up the, the trophic chain and, and who's eating these people? Well, you know, there aren't a lot of animals that eat tube worms. And that's evidenced by the fact that, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, these things can live for hundreds of years just sitting there. <laughs> even in relatively deep water, you know, half a mile deep water where there's not a lot of other food. And we think that's partially due to the fact that their blood is probably quite toxic. <laughs> it can bind the sulfide, you know, and protect the animals from the deleterious effects of sulfide. But if the animal's eaten and that blood is acidified, it'll release all the sulfide. So they could be quite toxic. Now, some of the other animals that graze on bacteria or have bacteria, in fact, in their gills, like mussels and clams, do have other predators that do come to the seeps and eat them. But even those predators that come to these places have to have some special adaptations because the places can be quite toxic. They're low in oxygen, they're high in sulfide, and they're just not an environment that all animals can tolerate. They have to be quite specialized. We've touched on a little bit the differences among the different vent systems sort of at the, at the oceanic level. What are the sort of main categories of, of hydrothermal vents, maybe in, including cold seeps in there as well? It sounds like there's, there's different communities in the different oceans. Absolutely. And 
even at vents that are chemically quite similar and formed in places where the plates are spreading apart, you have biogeographical differences in the fauna you find there. Just like you find different animals in Africa and South America, you know, Europe and the United States, due to biogeography, due to the history of the earth, in different places on the seafloor, we'll find different arrays of animals. In the Pacific, in different places, we have a variety of different kinds of tube worms, mostly dominating, but also clams and mussels. If you go north off the coast of Canada or the Pacific Northwest, we have different species of tube worms and different species of clams and mussels. And then, as I mentioned before, if you go into the Arctic or into the Mid-Atlantic, we have communities where you see almost no tube worms, but abundant mussels. Mussels, in fact, seem to be one of the real successful groups. They have symbionts in their gills. You find them at vents all over the world and at cold seeps all over the world. Many different species. We've seen them quite a lot at the, the fringes of brine pools as well. Yeah, they're not as spectacular as the tube worms, but they seem very good at becoming bacteria farmers. They really are. And you know, they do it a little bit differently in that they appear to get nutrition from the bacteria as the bacteria grow, kind of the same way tube worms do. You know, the bacteria are leaking some of the food that they make, but they also digest their bacteria. And one of the really crazy things about the mussels is that they not only have symbionts that can oxidize sulfide, some of them rely entirely on methane, like the ones around the brine pools in the Gulf of Mexico that you mentioned. They do not have sulfide oxidizing symbionts. Their symbionts use methane as both a carbon and an energy source for the mussels to grow on. And other symbionts will use other reduced sulfur compounds. Some are even using hydrogen as an energy source. And some of the mussels will have more than one type of symbiont. And they can adapt to a variety of different environments with that array of potential food sources. Wow. So they're kind of a, a Petri dish and whatever the conditions allow to thrive, they can feed on that food source. They're equipped to use quite a few different chemical energy sources. They are. You know, some of the species don't have that metabolic flexibility. The one that we find at the brine pools in the Gulf of Mexico, it's a methane specialist. It might get little bumps here and there from other things, but it's methane. Without methane, that muscle will not grow. But other muscles deeper in the Gulf or in the Atlantic, absolutely. Multiple different kinds of symbionts and can adapt to a variety of different environments. Incredible. And the vents themselves, at least the, the hydrothermal vents, on the sort of geological context and on an evolutionary context, they're fairly ephemeral. They're fairly short-lived. So what happens when a vent stops, when it moves off the hotspot and it starts to cool? Is there a progression of communities as it starts to, to wind down? So I guess there's a variety of ways to approach that question. Certainly within an individual vent that the, the venting starts to wane, sometimes they just kind of get clogged. The plumbing gets clogged from all those metal-rich fluids that are coming up, and it might just start venting 10 meters away or 100 meters or a kilometer away. And in that situation, the tube worms that are attached to the seafloor, when that particular spigot that they're tied to turns off, they're going to die. However, they do produce larvae. They produce sperm and eggs and larvae that can then come up into the water column and spend months in the water column. And some of the very, very lucky few will settle at a new vent. And in fact, 
when brand new vents pop up on the seafloor, and as scientists, we've seen this happen, especially when they're in the neighborhood of other vents, the time course for settlement is just amazing. You'll have new tube worms settling and growing to reproductive size in less than a year. That's amazing. And because we know the origin of those vents, we, we have a nice growth rate. We can tell that those tube worms weren't there before. Yeah. Well, you know, there's some places that have been really intensively studied, like along the East Pacific rise, where Europeans, French, German, Americans, Japanese, all the different countries that have good deep submergence research capabilities have been working for a long time. And there's some places that we've gone back to at least every other year for decades. So in those places, when there's a tectonic event, when the, the ground shakes, or, or even if we get a magmatic event and lava comes out, it's often been visited immediately after or immediately before, and then plans are made to come back as soon as possible. So yes, we have actually seen this happen, seen vents that quit and new vents that started and been able to follow the progression in detail, sometimes even with um, cameras that have been left down for months to document what's going on. Incredible. There used to be these sort of sporadic, mysterious things, but it sounds like we're getting a better idea of where to look for them. And uh, we're going back and visiting favorites and seeing how they progress over time. Yes, indeed. And then I guess the other part of that question is the fact that over longer periods of time, whole sections of the seafloor may shut down and, and another section hundreds or a thousand kilometers away could open up. And those vents also get recolonized amazingly quickly. And there is uh, an amazing amount of genetic continuity along ridge crests for thousands of miles in some cases, where the same species is moving back and forth up and down the vent, up and down the uh, spreading center. Amazing. Are they just playing the odds? Are they just releasing a lot of larvae and that hoping that some sort of find their way back up? I, I could see how down current yeah. vents would be seeded, but uh, do we know how they get to the top again? They float. They are absolutely playing the odds. <laughs> they are producing millions of sperm and eggs and larvae. You know, one tube worm will produce millions in the hopes that one or two might eventually find a suitable place. Now, these are tiny larvae. They can't swim someplace new. So they are entirely reliant upon ocean currents to move them horizontally. They can move themselves vertically simply by adjusting buoyancy. So if they're very buoyant when they first you know, hatch or when the eggs are first laid, they'll float up into the water column. If at a later stage in their development, they become negatively buoyant, they will sink out of the water column. In the hope that they, they land on a favorable spot. Yeah. You know, I think one of the places that really brought this home to me was, again, with these tube worms in the Gulf of Mexico. First of all, we would find a tiny little cold seep spot with very little activity and find on one little rock where we see nothing else for hundreds and hundreds of meters around, both of the species, the tube worms that live in that part of the Gulf would have found that spot and settled on it. <laughs> now, how many larvae have sunk to the wrong spot? They have a whole bunch of them, hundreds of them, yeah. find this little spot that's the size of a basketball and form a group there. And then if you kind of think over long time periods, basically each male and female tube worm has to replace itself over its lifetime. If it does more than replace itself, then over thousands of years, the tube worms are going to take over the planet, right? They're just going to grow out of control. <laughs> so basically, 
These animals with a very large reproductive capacity, spawning every year, every few years, for hundreds of years, only two of their offspring from a pair of tube worms is going to survive to you know, make more tube worms. And that's a win. That counts as success. You've replaced yourself. That's a total win. Yeah. And, you know, too bad for the other billion babies that didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> when you mention the different biological characters, the different biogeography to the vents, do you think it's sort of a, an ecological difference? Like there's some reason why these animals are found at some, some vents? Or do you think that because of the way these larvae are sort of passively scattered by the currents, there are some populations that just don't mix there are there are some species that just never make it from from one ocean to the other so we're seeing almost independent lineages in each ocean yeah i think that the latter is really the story while there may certainly you know new vents and over geological time you can get the very rare larvae that went further to populate and start population in a new area but again you know i come back to the analogy of the continents you know, the continents on the surface of Earth were at one time all one giant continent, Pangaea. Then they spread apart. As they got further and further apart, they got more and more isolated from each other. And the fauna diverged. And they no longer exchange babies. So they're completely separate. Well, over geological time, the same kinds of things have happened with hydrothermal vents. You know, millions of years ago, the East Pacific rise, the, that is the plates that were spreading across in the Pacific Ocean, were connected off the shore of California from the Southern Oceans, the East Pacific rise, all the way up to Juan de Fuca Ridge and, and further north. And then in the last, I'm, I'm horrible with geological time, but I'm going to say in the last several hundred thousand years, part of the East Pacific rise came onto land and it was separated. And in fact, part of that remnant is the San Andreas Fault. So now the spreading centers of the East Pacific rise come into land in, in about Mexico, and then they are separated again up in the North Pacific. Between those two, there's no spreading center. So what was once one population is now two. You still have tube worms and mussels, but they're all different species of tube worms and mussels. They no longer communicate with each other. And of course, when you talk about different ocean bases, you know, that separation occurred just as the as the continents were separating from each other. I wonder if we've, we've accidentally introduced invasive species. I know the, the chances are so, so low, but like in vessel bilge water and things like that, I know that's much more of a problem in, in shallower waters. But I, I wonder if we're going to accidentally cross-pollinate, you know, some bio box that wasn't quite scrubbed well enough on a, on a new research leg accidentally brings a Pacific tube worm to the Atlantic. It's really a great question. And scientists have gotten concerned about it. It took a little while you know, to kind of wake up. Oh, really? This has been thought about? Oh, absolutely. And especially there are um, buoyancy compensation on a small scale that happens with submarines like the Alvin by pumping water in and out. Bring water in to get heavy, pump water out to get light. And of course, that water could carry bacteria, organisms, or disease you know, from one vent site to another. So I think that was one of the real wake-up calls was... Um, the discovery of some populations of mussels in the Western Pacific that had a bad wasting disease. And one of the researchers involved in this, Cindy Van Dover, said, you know, we need to be a lot more careful about cleaning our bio boxes and the, the buoyancy compensation <laughs> water in the Alvin that we don't accidentally carry this disease to a population that's never seen it. 
That's incredible. That's it's getting to NASA levels of uh, of worry. I know they're they're really really cautious about introducing anything that uh, you know, and then getting excited that it was there when it was actually them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you think are the are the big outstanding questions in vent research? I bet the I bet lots spring to mind. But what sort of keeps you up at night, frowning at the ceiling? <laughs> well, one of the questions that we've been investigating for many, many years that I still don't think we've really nailed is how all the different vent species colonize other vents. Are there real stepping stones between vents that are used by vent species? How far can they go? What are the triggers that get them to a new vent and cause them to settle? I mean, I think we know the answers to these questions in broad brushstrokes, but right down at the biological level, there's a lot of details still to be worked out. And it's, it's not something I've worked on directly, but it's something that I think still fascinates biologists. And just how they have lots of different methods. Yes, because, you know, in general, marine animals have a variety of different mechanisms to repopulate. Most of them do use larvae. Many, you know, have larval stages. Certainly stuff that lives on the seafloor, especially attached to the seafloor, has to have larval stages, you know, to find new places. But there's all kinds of different larvae and all kinds of different strategies there. And we're a long ways from knowing really how far different vent species can move in a generation and, and just how they're all related. So those are great partially answered questions. Now, from my own perspective as a, as a physiologist and somebody who really studied how the animals work, I think there's just a lot still to be done in that area. For example, with the mussels that have different kinds of symbionts. What's at play there? What's the role of the animals in helping different symbionts? How do the symbionts let the animals know that they want to be helped? How are the different symbionts transported between generations? Yeah, they must have to start their farm someday. Yeah. So there's a lot of great questions right at the interface there it, with respect to the symbiosis and respect to the physiology that, that also need to be answered. Still plenty to do. Oh, yeah. We know a lot more than we used to, though. There used to be these mysterious things you just stumble upon every now and then. <laughs> well, you know, we still kind of are. And <laughs> the deep sea is so poorly explored in general that you pretty much cannot make a dive into the deep sea without stumbling into a new species of animal, especially if you start taking sediment samples or things like that. So there's, uh, there's a lot new under the, under the sun when it comes to the deep sea. <laughs> One of the things we like to do on the show particularly because the deep sea has such a, a bad track record for it. Is there anything you want to set the record straight on? Is there any like little factoid you hear over and over again that is just wrong? And you'd like to take this opportunity to, to, to say on the record that that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great question. So one of the ones early on was the, the first people that discovered the vent tube worms were geologists. And they brought them up on the deck of a ship and they stretch them out, and their tubes can be three meters long. So people for years and years and years, and I still hear it, talk about tube worms that are meters long. Well, in fact, there are no tube worms we know of, no hydrothermal vent tube worms especially, that are meters long. They have tubes that are meters long, but the animals themselves, a giant vent tube worm, is a meter long. So that's kind of a small factoid that, uh, that still raises its, its ugly head once in a while. So does the animal itself sort of move up the tube as, as it grows? Yeah. Was it the tube itself that reached that length? Yes. So what these tube worms can do, they're, they're in a giant clump. And these clumps can be, you know, meters high. But 
the two bourbons are competing with each other to get their gill-like plume into the energy-rich seawater. So they're constantly growing their tubes to keep their plume up there. And what the tube worms actually do is they, they can grow tube quite quickly, and then they will lay down new partitions in their tube for the base. So the tube worm is only occupying, you know, the top half a meter or meter of the tube at a time, but the tube can be much longer. Oh, I like that one because I was guilty of that. Because yeah, you, you see the tube, you see an animal sticking out the top, therefore animal must be bigger than tube. <laughs> and of course, the iconic pictures from the early days were the scientists on the deck of the ship with these just giant tubes stretched out with the tube worm in it. Now, having said that, the tube worms that may get that long are the hydrocarbon seep ones. But most of the length of those animals is just the hair-like root, a single root that can go meters into the sediment with a tube worm that's sticking out of the sediment by over a meter. So those thin worms, generally only as big around as a pencil, actually can get to be several meters long. I feel they're, they're quite overlooked. I'm, I'm really liking the sound of the, the cold seep tube worms, and we don't really talk about them, or, or at least not, not in the sort of pop-sci hydrothermal vent worms. I think they might be unsung heroes, so we'll definitely put some wider reading in the show notes to uh, give them their due. I think they're really good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad to hear that, because I think they are fascinating, and I spent much of my career studying those. We'll get them some limelight. So you've got an elevator pitch. You've got 30 seconds for someone's attention. How do you get them really excited about vents? What's your like go-to fact? <laughs> you know, the deep sea is a long ways from the consciousness of most people. And in fact, many people really wonder why we care about the deep sea. But the fact of the matter is, the deep sea is connected to the rest of the ocean. Impacts of the deep sea will impact the rest of the ocean. And we really don't understand much of what's going on in the deep sea. And although people may think that this is not critical knowledge for the planet, it is critical knowledge. Because if we mess up the ocean in any significant way, we're going to hurt billions of people on Earth. That was brilliant. That's very in line with the philosophy of the show. <laughs> That's sort of the Good. what we're trying to preach here. Because it's often portrayed as this separate, isolated thing, and it's a, it's a bit of a freak show, and you can enjoy it in a documentary, but you don't really need to worry about it. It's this other, but that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. And we're finding more and more examples of commercially important species that rely on the deep sea for nursery grounds, you know, a place to either lay their eggs or for their young to thrive. You know, in the case of the cold seeps in the Gulf of Mexico, some of those are less than a quarter mile deep. And there are commercially important fish and crab species that visit those regularly and get lunch and dinner from those regularly. Yeah, a lot of energy is entering the system. It's at these, these pinpoints, but they're, yeah, they're converting a lot of chemical energy into biological energy. So that's going to be supporting wider ecosystems. Absolutely. That's fantastic. My own work has been sort of deep sea vent adjacent, but I've never got a chance to sort of properly get involved. So um, I learned a great deal. Thanks so much for talking with us, Chuck. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to hearing it. There was genuine surprises in there for me. Yeah. There was genuine things I didn't know about. And again, it's, it's fascinating how, even though we're meant to be deep sea people, as soon as you take the spotlight off your sort of target area, I, I'm full of all those factoids, all of those things that have been perpetuated that just aren't true. Yeah. So massive sympathy for anyone in the general public who's just got an interest in the deep sea. You forgot to ask him about whether or not life originated at hydrothermal vents. Because that's, that's another one of those ones which perpetuates all the time. Yeah. And it, those who are actually working in that subject, we're talking about it needs 
UV and clay or something like that. It was something very non-deep sea, but still chemosynthetic, but not a classic deep sea hydrothermal vent. Who knows? But we do know that the, the amphipod is not what Geiger based the alien on, so, you know. <laughs> Take our victories. Some things we just don't know. I didn't know how thoroughly adapted the tube worms were. I didn't know they had like a specialized bacterial organ and it wasn't a repurposed stomach. It was this yeah. this absorbent sac that was a whole new thing, that they're taking the nutrients down to it, that the, the gills are just chemical and gas exchange and it's all going on down in the tube. Well, that was really good. Yeah, no, no, no. I remember, I'm not saying yes, of course I know that, but the reason why I know that is because about 10 years ago, I had to teach second year ocean biology. And then suddenly you have to do crash course and all these different things. <laughs> so at the time, I didn't know that either. But I, I do know that now because I've had to teach it for a long time. But uh... Teaching is really good at get, getting you sort of more broad. If you've got like a laser focus on your, your area of expertise, then teaching actually forces you to, to be a lot more broad. It's funny when I don't know if the undergraduates necessarily appreciate it, but when you've got a new lecturer who's, who's obviously not been a lecturer before, how much they're also learning as they go because... Yep. There's a lot of stuff you're asked to teach. It's just you've never even thought about. And uh, if it's ever thrown back at you, the whole like, uh, well, why do you think that is? Like, yeah. that, that's not them being a smug teacher. Like, they don't know. They're stalling for time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, a, there's a few subjects. That they're like, I once had to do one on uh, temperature adaptation. And the obviously one there was the Antarctic ice fish and the whole thing about having antifreeze in your blood and whether they can actually touch the ice, you know, and so on and so on. I knew nothing about that. I've never worked on that before. <laughs> There's, there's shallow water fish and they're in Antarctica and I've never really done it before. And, you know, I'm sort of sitting up till midnight a couple of nights trying to put these lectures together. I've gone, this is fascinating. I've learned so much. And then you turn up on the, whatever it is, the Wednesday morning and only three of them have turned up for the lecture. And you're like, oh, well. <laughs> I did my homework. I learned something. That's fascinating. Where's the hunger for learning? I find it really cool as well how different the character is of different vents and that there's clearly a barrier for distribution. And that worry of, of we might accidentally move things between vents and end up with with an invasive species all our fault or from someone's bio box or something yeah i mean i remember when it first came out that the, the vents up in the arctic were basically sponge based they don't have the big tube worms you know that sort of classic galapagos style black smoker isn't necessarily it's like what ash was saying about seamounts there isn't really actually one seamount that would represent all seamounts yeah there's the first one we found that became the the basis of all documentaries. Yeah. But actually, it's not they're not all like that. No, all snailfish look like the one in Alpha Vaticana. But <laughs> mm. the contamination thing is a real issue. I think it, it always will be. You know, uh, but I'm not sure what else to do. I mean, there are things in place. Like I, I won't I won't say what which country this was because it's not necessarily placed them in the right light. But we had a situation where we were we were asking for permission to dive a submarine in two places very close to each other. And the organising authority had said, that's fine, but in between dives, we want you to wash down the submersible with bleach, which sent chills and horror through the sub-team, going, there's no way, you know, they think of nitrile seals and all the rest of it, you know, there's no way we're bleaching this thing. And even if you did bleach a 12-ton submarine, which is four metres high, litres upon litres upon litres of that bleach will end up in the sea, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're washing it on a boat, it's just, it was one of those things, it sounds, um, it, it, might, it might have been one of these regulations that maybe with more bucket and spade type of science would be sterilize your equipment in between taking samples. But in this particular case, our our spatula is a submarine, so it didn't really translate. <laughs> so we're kind of like, eh, I don't think we should do that. But then you turn to like page eight of the application form and it says, if you're doing any work in this particular area, we really want you to look at uh, anthropogenic contaminants. And they listed a bunch of examples and one of them was bleach. <laughs> it's like, you know, you know, if we found bleach and we just washed the 12 ton submarine with bleach, there's a good chance it came from the submarine. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's a hard one because you, you know, theoretical, you should really, but then I don't know. I, I think this is quite a unique one. I think I can't think of anything else other than bacteria and the the larvae of this. I can't think of anything else that would sort of survive the trip. Yeah, because a lot of the fish, they're 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 sort of up in the surface waters anyway, and they they don't have that same kind of barrier. But because these are so passive, because it's only like the quirks of the ocean circulation that mean that the tube worms aren't in this ocean. I could see how, you know, a little bit of bilge water, because they're really playing the odds. Mm. We've argued this before, like how they might strategically try and find suitable locations. And and it does seem, at least our understanding right now, is they're just, they're really, really playing the odds. And they've got this rapid metabolism for a deep sea animal, loads of energy turnover. They live hundreds of years and they're just dedicating loads of their energy budget to reproduction in just the real sparse hope of landing in a very specific spot. But yeah, it's a, it's a it's a quite a new quite a new worry. I know I know it's been considered before, but like it's I guess working on sort of bigger fishy things, it's less of an issue. I've never sort of thought about this stuff. Well, now you have. That's another thing to sit up at night. If I had a look around, I think we still really should talk to a parasitologist, deep sea parasites. Yes, because that's you know parasitology on a, on a on deep sea must be of a scale it doesn't really mirror that of any other environment mm. in terms of just here's a big chunk of space to pass between one thing and another. And how, oh, yeah. what's the biogeography of your average parasite in the deep sea? I've absolutely no idea. Like, seriously no idea. Yeah. I know that when it comes to things like ossidax and these other weird whalebone-eating animals, that they do seem to have extraordinarily large geographical ranges. I know they're not parasites, but they seem feel like they're of that kind of ilk. But pff, I have no idea. I, I, we need to find a good parasitologist. Yeah. I think I've made I've made my prediction on the podcast before, I think, that I think there'll be a whale parasite that finishes its life cycle in the whalefall community in one of the scavengers yeah that's, that's my that's my prediction i'm putting out there because that that one that one makes sense to me it'd be difficult to get back but you know if you get up to the plankton and it's a baleen whale or something like that when we we're looking at the whale louse that was horribly overpressurized and apparently can live deeper than yeah we know whales can live like that might just be a quirk of evolution like we we know with the pods can go deeper like it might just be a chance thing or they might make the final trip on a dead whale <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Go down with the ship. It's a bit out there. It's a bit out there, but I just, I don't know. I have an inkling. I have an inkling that all these scavengers coming in and eating the whale carcass, that would be a good vector for a parasite. Oh, also, also speaking of uh, strange things, I don't know I don't know where we're going with this conversation, but I've got I've got another conspiracy theorist on the go. An, an actual theorist? Somebody has, has crossed your path? Uh, yeah, someone who's written to me on, uh, I think it's on the back of our uh, missing airliner guy, because uh, looking at who's been CC'd on this email, and they have found, believe it or not, a six-kilometre-wide caldera northeast of Guam, north of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Uh-huh. And he sent me all the Google uh, Earth shots of it, and he reckons this big hole also has two flaps on the side. Oh, it's got a hatch. And he thinks we we should go and we should go and investigate it. And I'm like, the the two flaps are just really bad bathymetry data. And it's just as this is following on from Ashy's conversation about seamounts. You know, you start with this like anything up to 15 million seamounts. Oh, this guy's found one. <laughs> and I think. He, and he's become fixated on it. Yeah, he's, I think he's, he's, I don't really understand what he's after, but he's drawing our attention to the fact that there is this thing and we should basically go and have a look. And what are the flaps? Because I know there's also a, an unnatural bend shape in one of the ocean ridges, which is totally natural when you think of transform faults and fracture zones and how they break perpendicular to the right you get a lot of right angles on there but anyway of all the hundreds and thousands of right angles 
there are he's found one and decided that's unnatural right. which i'm not sure why he's why that one? making a point of saying that's unnatural so that must be some sort of alien structure or whatever and it's next to this big caldera which is a volcano but it's got flaps on the side of it so yep can i propose our next t-shirt is what are the flaps can't do can't do what are those flaps deep sea flaps <laughs> what are the flaps i don't know Alan, what are the flaps? I'll send, I'll send you the email later and have a look at it and see if you could decipher exactly what he's talking about. It sounds like crazy stuff, but I would I'd like to think I'm going to go and spend some of my holidays looking into this, but let's be honest, I'm not. <laughs> so. Well, I think you know the answer that's going to be found is it's a it's an anomaly from the data. No, no, no it just looks like a seamount. It's just... it's. But the flaps the, are... The, like... Yeah, the flaps just look like it's a, just a, a bad multi-beam line in there somewhere. And that's the problem with multi-beam. It's, it's, it's a stripe of good data over overlaid on bad data. So sometimes it looks like a straight line because it's just because the ship's gone in a straight line on the surface. People see these as being roads and, and canal systems. And yeah. in this case, flaps on the side of a volcano. So maybe the flaps on the side of a volcano is to let all the spaceships out. Oh, I thought it, I thought he was going for it to hatch and it opens. But he's, by his own admission, it's six kilometers wide. So if it is a hatch, what, what the earth is coming out of that? Something five kilometers wide. Well, 5.9 kilometers, you'd like to think. <laughs> He's found Santa's workshop. Like an old single garage that give you one inch on either side to get your oh, car yeah. in. You can't open the doors, yeah. but you can technically get the door the car in. Yeah, like that. 5.9 kilometer monster. <laughs> Perfectly tucked up. Yep. I feel like this a lot in pushing back on these things, but the amount of work it would take you to properly answer that question. And they would never believe it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You'll just get like, oh, well, of course you'd say that. He's like, oh, that was half of my day. And I properly researched it. And I got you the citations. I told you where the data was. I came at this honestly and openly to answer your question. I'm sorry you don't like the answer. But yeah, it's, it's so much easier just to make stuff up because you could do that in a, in a few seconds. Yeah. But actually to rebut that takes too much energy. I'll file it away in my, my file of crazy people. <laughs> it's, it's a good file. It's getting bigger. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Well, on more positive listener feedback, we had a listener get in touch to share their deep sea themed children's book. Steve, Jay, Royce, Ollie, and Opie, the Curious Octopus Twins. We should probably do a kids episode because there's quite a number of authors with various cartoon characters. There was the penguin guy who wrote back in character, remember? Yeah. He wrote back as, as the penguin. You did address the penguin directly, though. <laughs> So it's Ollie and Opie, the Curious Octopus Twins, which is about two Dumbo octopuses in the deep sea, and they are the foster children of a mother. Anyway, she was a, she was a grumpy-looking deep-sea fish, and she teaches them all about the deep sea. It's all the sort of umbrella of foster care and, and families being made up of different elements. And I remember the one bit I really did like is that it actually points out that she looks a bit scary and she looks a bit grumpy because of her downturned mouth, but actually she's lovely. I really like that bit. Nice. <laughs> and it doesn't change how she's illustrated. She is like biologically accurate and looks a bit fearsome and grumpy. But I like the idea that, I th no, actually, she's lovely when you get to know her. That's just her face because of the type of fish she is. Yeah. <laughs> she's just an ugly species. I love that. I thought that was cute. So yeah, there's a, there's a wider meaning to those ones, but it's sort of framed in a bit of a deep sea context. And we did also hear from, uh, got a lovely message actually from uh, Jake Hewitt, who is a wildlife photographer and videographer from Montana in the USA. And he's a big fan of photography and videography as a form of science communication. And he got in touch to tell us that he loves listening to the podcast while he's driving around Yellowstone looking for wildlife to photograph. Nice. Bears. So I'll put his uh, Instagram handle in the show notes and you can check out his stuff and, and see if it's somehow inspired by listening to us in the car on the way there. <laughs> well, I've got one from a guy called Scott Carl who has written me a whole load of questions 
but we don't have time for them all, but the first one is an easy one. It says, is bioluminescent ever used as a weapon to effectively stun organisms with very sensitive eyes in the same way as a flashbang grenade will stun people when used to storm a room? The answer to that is yes. Absolutely. We even wrote a paper on it a long time ago about ostracods using bioluminescence to temporarily blind eels. Uh, it might give you a, a second of advantage because you're overloading one of the eel's main sensors and that's enough to get away. So yeah, that happens all the time. Here's one for you, Tom, because I'm saying this for you because I don't know the answer to it yet because I haven't actually read the whole question yet. But <laughs> Does the behaviour of the deep scattering layer change based on the phase of the moon? How much light is in the sky? It seems probable that they're able to detect the change in light conditions even as deep as they are. Are they moving upward in parts so that they can see with less light coming in? I think what he's getting at is, is, is that these animals, particularly mctophids and stuff like that, will move up and down depending on light level. And that light level is driven by scattering layers and cloud cover as well. Mm. You know, it's not just what's going on in the water, it's just light levels and everything that controls that. So when you're down in or up in high latitudes in the in the polar regions, the water is very cloudy. You can't see very far. So the, the, the light levels won't any desired light level is probably much shallower than it is in the tropics where it can go down much deeper. So yeah, it does all affect it. They're not they're not moving up and down between two depths, they're moving up and down between two light levels. Yeah, and those those adjust based on the yeah. the conditions at the time. Yeah. But it's also a great sort of timekeeping. And um I don't know if anyone sort of properly looked into this. We've got the daily day-night cycle yep. and then we've got the lunar sort of light levels as well and it is feasible that that would provide them with a, a bit of a longer term timing device um, and of course they've got sea surface temperature and they they can feel the they can feel the tides as well so there's there's lots that they can sort of feed into them but yeah basically as alan said it's like i think overall a light detector and they will move within two illuminations based on the the conditions just their optimum range for hunting i suppose yeah the optimum light level regardless of what's causing that they've got so little to to pin any sort of grounding on these are animals in total 3d environments that never come across a boundary i mean they can probably feel that they're getting deeper and deeper they know that the the pressure is increasing but they're probably not within a sort of accuracy so it's their only foothold of reference in this totally open 3d environment i think at least hello again this is oceanographer and explorer don walsh and for today's Sea Story program, I'd like to tell you about lunch at the vents. In the late 90s, I worked with an adventure diving company called Deep Ocean Expeditions. They had a simple business plan, take adventurers to famous seafloor sites in the deep ocean. And I might add adventurers with a fairly generous purse. And these would be to uh, sites deeper than scuba or sport diving. We're talking about going to the deep seafloor thousands of feet below the surface of the ocean. There were initially three basic products offered. Titanic, uh, the depth of 12,500 feet. Uh, the World War II German battleship Bismarck at a depth of 15,500 feet. And then various hydrothermal vent fields. And that's what I'll talk about today. We used two Russian manned submersibles, Mir-1 and Mir-2, uh, the word Mir being the Russian word for peace, and they were supported by their mothership, Keldish, which was uh, also used to house our adventure divers because our typical expedition would be to take several of them with us and we'd be out perhaps for two weeks, even though each one of them only got one dive. The Mir subs were built in Finland and are capable of diving to 20,000 feet, which means that they could reach 98% of the seafloor in the world ocean. 
And despite the tourism aspect of all the DOE uh, diving operations, we did some scientific work on all the dives. The mirrors were fitted with instrumented sensors and physical sampling devices. And after each dive, when we put the sub down on the deck, the Russian scientists would eagerly crowd around to collect the data and the preserved collected samples. Well, these subs uh, actually could carry two tourist adventurers plus the Russian pilot. So by diving together each day, four adventurers could dive per day. And that made a, an attractive business proposition because with four divers each day, we could actually make a little profit. These were the only deep diving manned submersibles in the world that could dive together. So this is really a, a unique capability or opportunity for deep ocean expeditions. There's no other system in the world where you could put four people down every day and, uh, and make a business out of it. I was fortunate to make uh, dives at all of the three major offerings of deep ocean expeditions, the Titanic, Bismarck, and the events. Uh, and that usually happened when somebody was, had booked one of these adventure dives and then had to cancel at the last minute. So we were left with uh, open seats. Then people like me, staff member, could get a chance to have the, the adventure. And they weren't cheap. It cost about $40,000 for Bismarck, which is the deepest dive. That was a, about a 14-hour dive. $35,000 for Titanic, a 12-hour dive. And around $18,000 for a 9-hour dive to the hydrothermal vents. In October 1999, I dove to 8,000 feet at the Rainbow Vent Field at the Azores, which uh, was on the mid-ocean ridge. The vents uh, rise from the seafloor like massive organ pipes. They're quite spectacular, and they are created by deposits of metallic compounds from the Earth's interiors. The hot flow of a jet, if you will, of water coming up from beneath the floor of the ocean can be up to several hundred degrees Fahrenheit in temperature, and as it is quickly chilled by seawater, which is at the seafloor near freezing, the compounds are rapidly concreted uh, into structures called vents. There's an amazing amount of rather normal-looking critters, such as fish, forms, crabs, and shellfish around the vents, but they have nothing to do with similar life forms in the upper layers of the ocean. This is a parallel life system that was essentially unknown until the late 1970s. And while most life on Earth, we were taught in school, was propelled or powered by the sun through photosynthesis, for example, these things living on the seafloor, which look just like what we are used to up in shallow waters, are actually fueled up by chemical compounds from the interior of the Earth. We call that chemosynthesis. So it was indeed like visiting another planet. I mean, you dove down from the surface of the ocean, it was maybe three or four hours in the dark, and you get to the seafloor, and here's this whole different world. It was a profound experience, at least for me. And I call this experience a dive to the edge of creation. And indeed, some experts have suggested that life on our planet may have found its beginnings in these deep ocean hydrothermal areas where you have heat, you have nutrients, and life can then proceed. Well, when we landed in the vents area, it was halfway through our nine-hour dive, so it was time for lunch. We were next to a rather large vent, which had lots of critters moving on and around it, so we left our lights, outside lights on while we enjoyed our box lunches. And to set the mood, we teed up the Beatles' We All Live on a Yellow Submarine tune on our tape deck inside the cabin. Considering the venue, it was one of the most memorable lunches I ever had, even though the Russian-built sandwiches are not very good. 
Well, that was over two decades ago, and today DOE is no longer in business, as we can no longer charter the mere subs. The Russian Academy of Sciences had retired them. So, adventure diving was interesting work while it lasted, and I'm sure glad to be part of it. Well, that's all for now, and thanks for listening. So last month was Seamounts and Sausages, this, this week is Vents and Sandwiches. <gasps> well, they all have a food theme. Yeah, so next next month it'll be whale falls and whale meat. Two on the nose. Little canapes. <laughs> <laughs> Little nibbles. Your guy next door is still talking, isn't he? I don't know, what a hell of a day. And he was in yesterday in the bank holiday. It was just me and him in. So I think oh, it's probably quite important. And there's probably a stupid podcast happening in the background. Yeah. <laughs> we were here first. <laughs> kind of. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any questions or comments, the email is in the show notes. And we're a friendly bunch. Just say hi. So until the next episode, which is hopefully going to be on Whale Falls, we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. I don't know what's going on here. I'm getting like really weird feedback. I'm like hearing myself and then it's reverbing and reverbing and reverbing. Look, look, look here. I think there's something wrong with the setting. 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 I think there's something wrong with the setting.